Good afternoon. Welcome to or everyone here in the audience and those of you watching remotely. My name is Eric Gomez, the Director of Defense Policy Studies here at the Cato Institute, and I welcome all of you to this Policy Forum event. This event is streaming on the Cato website, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. We are also live on C-SPAN. You can submit questions by using the hashtag CatoFP, that's capital C and capital FP, or via Slido on the Cato event page. For many decades, the US has fought in dozens of armed conflicts around the world without a congressional declaration of war. Indeed, the last time that Congress passed a declaration of war was in World War II, despite America's incredibly active post-war global military presence. Congress has not been completely absent from decisions of war and peace, but the general trend has seen a concentration of power in the executive branch to the expense of the legislature. The end of the US military mission in Afghanistan creates an opportunity to begin reversing this trend and restoring Congress's Article I powers. As many Cato scholars have argued, a more active legislative role over decisions of war and arms sales would bring policy decisions back in line with the US Constitution and reduce the likelihood of dangerous military adventurism abroad. This year, bipartisan groups of legislators in the House and Senate have introduced sweeping reform bills that would begin the reassertion of the legislature's war powers. We are delighted to have one of the legislators involved in this effort here with us today. Today's policy forum will discuss the role of Congress in US foreign policy and the recent push to reassert the legislative branch, branch's oversight over war authorizations, arms sales, and emergency declarations. We are joined today by Senator Chris Murphy and the Cato Institute's Jordan Healy, or Jordan Cohen and Jean Healy. Senator Murphy will give introductory remarks, followed by Jordan and Jean. The Senator's schedule does not permit him to stay for the entire event, but we are very grateful to have him here with us. Senator Chris Murphy, the junior senator from Connecticut, is the sponsor of the National Security Powers Act of 2021, which is co-sponsored by Senators Bernie Sanders of Vermont and Mike Lee of Utah. He serves on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and is the chair of the Foreign Relations Subcommittee on Near East, South Asia, Central Asia, and Counterterrorism. He is also the chair of the Senate Appropriations Subcommittee on Homeland Security. Senator Murphy, the floor is yours. Well, thank you very much, Eric, uh, for the introduction. Thanks to my friends at the Cato Institute for hosting me uh, here today. I'm grateful to be uh, joined here by uh, both Jean and, and Jordan. I'm sorry that I won't be able to stay for um, their full remarks, but uh, I look forward to a download. Um, greatly respect their work. Um, I'm looking forward to this discussion, and I want to thank Cato for um, highlighting uh, what I believe to be a very broken balance of power on national security matters between uh, the Congress and the executive branch. Uh, and I'm grateful that this is a moment where we have um, a Congress um, represented by Republicans and Democrats that's more engaged in this issue than at any time before during my service here. Um, it may be a little hackneyed to sort of start with a discussion of our founders when we you know, are talking about who's uh, uh, in charge of declaring war, but how can you start anywhere else? Um, the Federalist Papers get all of the attention, but in 1793, 
Hamilton and Madison do a, a back and forth, a series of, of essays contesting their different visions of the balance between the legislative branch and the executive branch. In one essay, Madison, who you know, gets a lot of credit as maybe the primary driver of the ideas behind the Constitution, talks about what happens when an emergency arises that necessitates quick, rapid executive action. He's talking about military action. And he concedes that there may be limited moments in which the president has to act, but he cautions that these instances should be really few and far between because he believes, as most of the founders did, that Congress, um, it's really important that Congress reserve this power to decide when America interferes in the world for itself. He says this, he says, but these instances, these emergencies he's talking about, are great and extraordinary cases and should by no means be submitted to so limited an organ of the national will as the executive of the United States. And that would pain a lot of presidents to hear them described as a limited organ of the national will, but it shows you, right, that the founders, in particular Madison, believed that there was one branch, Article I, not coincidentally Article I, that was the place where the great public debates were supposed to happen. The big decisions, especially those decisions about national security, especially those connected to these foreign entanglements that our founders thought so much about needed to happen in Congress. In another essay, in that same exchange, Madison says, those who are to conduct a war cannot in the nature of things be proper and safe judges whether a war ought to be commenced, continued, or concluded. Right? Another fascinating idea that those who are in the business of conducting the war don't have the proper perspective, the proper distance to be able to make sound judgments about whether the war should be started, whether the war should be continued, or whether the war should be concluded. Our founding fathers believe that the executive branch and the legislative branch needed to share foreign policy making, but the decision about inception and conclusion when it came to war and foreign entanglements, that had to be vested in the people's branch. And in our early years, it's kind of interesting because the president you know, most often respected this investment of national security powers in the Congress. You think about some of the, the earliest military engagements, the, the quasi-war with France in 1798, conflicts with the Barbary states, some of our wars with Native American tribes um, on our continent, all declared by Congress. President withholding the decision to commit U.S. forces and resources until a decision made for by Congress. Um, in other national security matters, beyond formal war making in those early years, uh, presidents and congresses also respected this balance. Take the question of alliances. In our early years, alliances were entered into uh, mostly through formal treaties, again, requiring congressional, uh, congressional assent. Um, it goes without saying, and we're here for this reason, that over the years, this, this shift from legislative power with respect to national security matters to executive powers uh, has been substantial. Uh, clearly modern presidents, for instance, are using increasingly creative and frequent means 
to enter into war without consulting Congress. The pace of US military activity today um, is fairly breathtaking. Now, Americans would tell you that we were at war in Afghanistan, that we still are at war in Iraq. But in fact, we've deployed combat troops to no less than 20 nations since 2001. We've conduct, conducted at least 14,000 unmanned airstrikes in every corner of the world. Our country's military has killed almost 50,000 civilians through unmanned and manned strikes since 2001. Presidents over the last 20 to 30 years have used a few methods to escape from Madison's requirement that war be declared by the people's branch of government. And these methods are becoming more frequent uh, and more nuanced. First, presidents uh, often will decide that the actions of the military it takes um, does not constitute war. You find that most recently with the case in Yemen. You often find that to be the case with unmanned aerial strikes. Second, presidents often declare that the circumstances are so exigent that the president cannot come to Congress in time. Again, this was contemplated by Madison, but now these emergencies, whether they be connected to an imminent attack or they are necessary to retaliate against an attack on US forces, um, seem to come on a monthly basis. And lastly, uh, presidents now often decide that the proposed action is covered by an existing war authorization. That's part of the reason that uh, my colleague, Senator Kane, and I, or Senator Young, are pushing an effort to get at least two war authorizations off the books. But we have seen over and over how other authorizations, in particular the 2001 authorizations, have been stretched beyond their reasonable interpretation to cover more and more action abroad. And then when it comes to our alliance structure, I would argue that presidents today rarely enter into treaties because they have found other ways to cement alliances that don't necessitate coming to Congress. Why go through all the trouble of negotiating a treaty and getting it signed off by the United States Senate when you can just sell a couple billion dollars in arms and have those arms sales bind that nation to you just as effectively as a treaty? We don't have mutual defense treaties with the UAE or Saudi Arabia or Morocco, but they are bound to us in one way, shape, or form by a dizzying array of arms sales, highlighted by the $100 billion sale proposed by President Trump or the massive F-35 and Reaper drone sale to UAE that was just green-lighted by President Biden. Now, these sales don't have to be approved by Congress, and thus the executive branch can do the business of alliance building without congressional approval. And so we come to the legislation we're going to talk about today. Um, this is the National Security Powers Act, which is introduced by myself, Senator Lee, and Senator Sanders. And our belief is that this piece of legislation can reset this balance. Just briefly, uh, let me explain how it does so on both the question of war making and arms sales. On war making, first and foremost, it makes explicit what I believe to be implicit in the construction of the war making power of the Constitution. That if the president does not have authorization for a particular military activity, then he cannot use public funds to carry out that activity. Now, both in the Constitution and in the War Powers Act itself, I would argue that uh, that 
is stipulated, our national securities, uh, our National Security Powers Act makes that absolutely clear that without authorization from Congress, uh, the executive branch cannot act. In fact, they lose funding authority to do that. We squeeze the timelines to make sure that Congress gets in the game at an earlier basis. Right now, the War Powers Act gives the president some significant leeway to begin substantial military activity without ever coming to Congress. It better defines what war is right now. That is left to almost the complete open interpretation of the executive branch. The National Security Powers Act says we're going to define in statute what hostilities are. So you can never again get a situation like Yemen where refueling planes and giving targeting advice does not constitute hostilities in the administration's mind. Um, on arms sales, uh, the change we make is a simple one, but it is incredibly meaningful. Right now, the president doesn't need congressional approval to sign off on an arms sale, but Congress has the power to disapprove. But that resolution of disapproval, as you all know, has to be passed by both houses and then has to be signed by the very president who is proposing the sale, meaning you need to have a treaty majority, a two-thirds majority in the House and the Senate in order to ever effectuate a resolution of disapproval because it is inevitably going to be vetoed by the president. Instead, for the most important arms sales, we reverse that presumption. Not for every arms sales, but for the big arms sales, especially to the non-treaty allies, to the uh, nations where the arms sale is effectively binding the United States to that country. We require that the president get proactive congressional assent, just like he or she would need for a treaty or for a declaration of war. The same for the big arms sales, because in practice and in principle, they have the same impact often uh, as a treaty. And so I'm looking forward to continuing to broaden the coalition of interest groups uh, and uh, members of Congress who are working on this legislation. There's no reason for this to be a Republican issue or a Democratic issue. I'm proudly introducing this uh, piece of legislation in the middle of a Democratic presidency because I believe that this balance needs to be reset no matter who's in the White House. And at a moment when this country is having a pretty open conversation about the efficacy of democracy, we have to understand that this is part and parcel of that conversation. Americans are wondering whether democracy is still relevant to their lives anymore. I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that their economic existence is just um, much tougher than they ever expected it to be, and they don't see Congress stepping up and doing something meaningful about it. But it also has to do with the fact that increasingly they see their sons and daughters, their neighbors, their lives being put at risk overseas, their taxpayer dollars being used to fund massive engagements in places of the world completely unfamiliar to Americans, and they don't feel like they have any input over that. They see these big decisions being made about going into war, coming out of war, but yet they never get a chance to engage with their member of Congress on that matter. They never see a debate happening in the United States Congress, and so you can't fault them when they start to wonder whether democracy still works in the way that they were taught in school, right? The power to declare war, vested in the Congress, vested in the people, but yet I've never been asked by my member of Congress, at least not since 20 years ago, whether or not war is something that I approve of. And so I'll leave you with a story um, to effectuate that point, to hammer it home. 
I think one of the most consequential moments of President Obama's presidency was the day that he decided on an outdoor walk with his chief of staff, Dennis McDonough, that he would refrain from launching airstrikes in Syria until he had won congressional approval. Now, hawks and war cheerleaders saw this as a sign of weakness, as a sign of indecision, and they urged him to take that fight to Syria without congressional authorization. But I saw that decision as a declaration of strength, the strength of our Constitution, that this document, this series of words on a paper, could limit a president to declare war without coming to Congress first. And I saw its impact. People sometimes lament that Americans are not invested in matters of national security, that they care much more about kitchen table bread and butter economic issues, but they're, they're detached from conversations about war and peace or foreign policy. I, I will tell you, that is not the case, not when it matters. So it was Labor Day weekend, 2013, when President Obama said he was going to ask Congress for a vote. And I can count on one hand the number of moments that I will call supermarket moments. Supermarket moments for me are moments as an elected official where you are at the supermarket and something matters so much to your constituents that they don't wait to sort of come up to you and enter into a civil conversation. They yell it to you, their opinion from across the supermarket, right? It matters so much to them. Um, that was one of those moments. Labor Day weekend, I was home all weekend in Connecticut, and wherever I went, people had an opinion about the wisdom of entering into war with Syria. I will tell you, almost to a person, they wanted me to vote against that authorization, that they had had enough of engagements in the Middle East. And so, to me, that is a sign of the thirst that Americans have when it comes to input into these big questions of national security. And I will admit that these decisions, whether or not to declare war, whether to sell arms to other countries, they're tougher and harder than they were generations ago. The enemies are harder to define today. They're always changing and metastasizing. Uh, peace treaties are non-existent, so it's sometimes hard to tell when a war ends, when an enemy is defeated. But Madison and our founders believe that forcing a public debate around matters of war and peace and national security would make this country safer. They were right. And I'm so glad that a lot of people in this town are committed to reviewing the National Security Powers Act because I really believe um, that if we reinvest Congress through this reform of our statutes, statutes with uh, the power um, that our founders believed should rest in the Article I branch, this country will indeed, this world will indeed be a safer place. So thank you to the Cato Institute for hosting me today. Thank you very much, Senator. Um, for a question for you before you uh, have to head out, someone asked on the, uh, Maddie on Slido asked about if you think the war in Afghanistan would have been ended sooner uh, if Congress had more of a role. And I, to echo that, I wanted to get your opinion on how do you and your other sponsors view the, role in the war in Afghanistan's role in all of this? Is this sort of a, uh, the sort of closing of a chapter of a long-running conflict that, that Congress wasn't sort of doing enough to, to oversight? Um, or how did that play into your decision-making? 
Well, listen, I think Congress's abdication on matters of national security um, extend just the formal declaration of war. And we can tell this story through the prism of Iraq, but we can certainly tell it through the story of Afghanistan. I mean, it was 10 years ago when visiting members of Congress to Afghanistan were beginning to be told that the minute uh, we left, the minute that our forces departed, the Taliban would take over. Um, why on earth did it take us 10 years to make a decision about whether we should stay or go or reorient our policy when it was so clear that the way in which we were doing things was fundamentally broken a decade ago? Um, and, and so my hope is that by passing this legislation or a version of this legislation, um, it, it sort of breathes a little courage back into Congress, not just on these sort of formal mechanisms of approving an arms sale or declaring a war, but on the oversight uh, itself. Um, and it frankly will make executives um, a little bit more careful about how they engage with Congress, right? If, a, if an executive knows that, for instance, they need to get proactive approval from Congress in order to approve an arms sale, then they are going to share much more information with us about national security policy. Um, some of you may saw I just won a two-year fight with the administration and my colleagues to uh, allow every member of uh, the Senate um, uh, to have one staffer that has access to classified information. I've been fighting this for years because it's stunning to me the amount of information that remains classified that most members of Congress can't access. And that is deliberate. The executive branch tries to hoard information on the conduct of war, um, often to try to um, shade from public view information that is embarrassing. Not information that is necessarily classified, but information that is embarrassing. Um, now, with more congressional access to that information, we'll be able to do better oversight. But I do think that this legislation, um, while not formally about the business of oversight, uh, will uh, give Congress a, a, a better sense of that mission. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you, everybody. Appreciate it. Great. Well, this is the start of an excellent conversation, I'm sure. Um, big thank you to Senator Murphy for, for coming today. I'm now going to introduce my two Cato Institute colleagues to continue the conversation. Uh, Jordan Cohen is a policy analyst at the Cato Institute's Defense and Foreign Policy Department, where he works on primarily issues of arms sale. Uh, he is the co-author of the Arms Sale Risk Index. Um, and all, Gene Healy is Cato's Senior Vice President for Policy and the author of several books on constitutional powers, including Indispensable Remedy, The Broad Scope of the Constitution's Impeachment Power, and The Cult of the Presidency, America's Dangerous Devotion to Executive Power. As a reminder, uh, for folks in the audience, when we do do the Q&A, we have mics here that you can ask questions in person. For those of you watching online, please submit your questions either via the Slido window on the Cato Institute streaming page, or you can use the hashtag CatoFP, that's capital C, lowercase A-T-O, capital F-P, um, if you're watching on Facebook, YouTube, or Twitter. Um, Jordan, please start us off. All right, well, yeah, thanks everybody for coming. Thank you, Eric, and that was awesome with uh, Senator Chris Murphy. So it's cool to be back in person, and I know what everybody missed about in-person events were 
statements and speeches on really intricate issues that go way over the time limit. Um, so so I, I hate to disappoint, but I'm going to try to keep these fairly brief. So when we talk about arms sales, very frequently what we look at and what the discussion is framed upon are issues of strategy and security and issues of economics, right? When we talk about strategy, are these weapons going to allies that those allies can then use to help us fight adversaries? When we talk economics, uh, all you have to do is listen to Trump talk about weapon sales or really any president prior to Trump. Jobs, jobs, jobs. One of the areas that is fairly undiscussed when it comes to weapon sales is the analysis of risk and how risk from these sales affects U.S. policy in the future. Our research at Cato Institute has identified four broad areas of risk, four ways that weapons can create problems for the United States. The first is blowback. If you look at Iraq and Afghanistan, where ISIS and other groups have been using weapons to kill U.S. soldiers, this is exactly what blowback is. Weapons end up in the hands of our adversaries. Second is entanglement, right? The U.S. gets involved in conflicts that it otherwise would not want to be involved in. A key example of this is what is going on currently in Yemen, where the U.S. is continuing to supply weapons to the Saudis that are continuing to be used against innocent civilians in Yemen. The third is we use weapons and oftentimes they upgrade authoritarianism. And we see this frequently in the, or we've seen this in the Philippines during the pandemic where the Filipino government used U.S. weapons to arrest opposition to the government. And finally, we look at dispersion and we find the idea that these weapons can be dispersed and end up in the wrong hands because they go to unstable nations. A key example of this is the Taliban having access to U.S. weapons in Afghanistan. So why hasn't Congress done anything? Is uh, Senator Chris Murphy brought up, it, it's a supermarket problem, uh, at least in part, right? Arms sales are a fairly low salience issue. But it's also a legislative one. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the legislative problem and how this legislation would work to kind of overturn this and change this. So first, I'm just going to give a brief history of the weapon sales legislation. Then I'm going to talk about why Congress can't do anything, and I'll conclude with how this legislation helps make a difference. So brief history, nobody really cares about restricting weapon sales until the 1970s. In the 1970s, you have three intertwining things. First, you have the U.S. using weapons to help Israel fight in two Arab-Israeli wars. Second, you have the withdrawal from Vietnam. And third, you have Watergate. And all of a sudden, Congress really cared about weapon sales. And so in 1974, Senator Gaylord Nelson and Representative John Bingham passed what, or worked on, co-sponsored, and then Congress passed the Nelson-Bingham Act. Nelson-Bingham Act really was the initial plan to restrict weapon sales, and it said any sale over $25 million, Congress had to review and had 20 days to pass a joint resolution of disapproval. This led to a few problems. First, the president could just sell weapons at $24.99 million a sale and get around that $25 million barrier. Second, 20 days is a really convenient time because the second Congress to go to recess, the president could then propose a sale and Congress wouldn't have time to look over the sale. On top of that, you had small problems like most of these sales, there was no timeline for when the president had to notify. So a lot of the sales were occurring before Congress could intervene. And then finally, there was no consequence, no discussion of commercial sales. So Congress reevaluates in 1976 and passes the Arms Export Control Act. Ford tries to veto it. 
he fails. And this solves a few problems, right? So first off, it lowers that $25 million mark to $7 million. Any weapon sale more than $7 million, Congress had to be notified and had then 30 days, so a 10-day increase to review. On top of that, it added language about commercial arms exports and provided Congress with quarterly and yearly reports about the impact of these sales. Here's the problem. Between the Arms Export Control Act and 38 other pieces of legislation passed by Congress since the passage of the Arms Export Control Act dealing with arms sales, Congress still can't restrict the president. And we know that because not once since the passage of the Arms Export Control Act has Congress ever invoked it to stop a sale. This was very clear under Donald Trump, where he tried five times, and all five times was successful It's selling weapons to Saudi Arabia, where twice it didn't get through Congress because they didn't have enough votes, not a simple majority. And then three times when they did get the simple majority, Trump used his powers to veto it or overrule it. So this leads to kind of the two broadest problems, right? Arms sales are low salience. At the end of the day, most of you here are probably here to hear about war powers and war, not necessarily weapon sales. And second, the president has this veto that he can use at any point to stop a weapon sale from occurring, or to let a weapon sale continue and stop Congress from blocking a weapon sale from occurring. On top of that, you have kind of three smaller problems. 30 days to block a transfer just isn't a long time, right? That requires Congress to get all the information, evaluate, and then gather the votes. Second, Donald Trump shifted small arms and light weapons to be reviewed in the Department of Commerce, no longer the Department of State, which meant that analysis of risk is very focused on economics and less so on security risk. And then finally, as we learned from when Donald Trump used emergency authorization to allow 22 separate kind of weapons pieces to be sold to Saudi Arabia, the president can just invoke emergency use authorization and override Congress completely. So the legislation that Senator Chris Murphy is co-sponsoring and we're seeing in the House and the Senate does a lot to overrule this. And I would argue it is the most restrictive, most empowering piece of legislation to Congress to restrict weapon sales in United States history. And this is because, number one, as Senator Murphy pointed out, it flips the script on arms sales. Uh, Flips the script was actually language used by Joe Biden in the 1980s to talk about how Congress should take charge of arms sales. And what it does is, so right now, Congress, to stop a sale, has to issue a joint resolution of disapproval. Right? That requires getting a simple majority, and then in both houses, and or both, both House and Senate, and then having the House and Senate have two-thirds majority to overrule the president's veto. That doesn't happen. What this legislation does is it says, rather than Congress having to disapprove of an arms sale, anytime the president agrees to a weapons sale, The status quo is that it is not approved. That means Congress has to fight to approve this sale. That has two huge benefits. First off, it means Congress and the president and the lobbyist groups need to do a lot more to say, hey, this is important. We should let this sale go through, right? Because again, people just generally don't care about sales. That also means when Congress wants to approve a sale to send weapons to say Yemen to be used for for purposes that attack civilians, They have to be able to defend that, and that's really hard. But second and more importantly, it gets rid of the presidential veto, right? Because right now, Congress has to pass a joint resolution of disapproval. If Senator Chris Murphy's legislation goes through, there will be no 
requirement to do that because the status quo will be no sale. All the president in that situation could veto is if Congress passes a resolution of approval for the sale, he could veto his own sale or she, which won't happen. And secondly, it also restricts the emergency waiver. It adds a lot of requirements to the president's ability to use the emergency waiver, including those weapons need to be delivered in 60 days. The president still has to submit determination and justification for each sale, and it does not apply in any case where a weapon could be co-produced outside of the United States. So overall, this is really comprehensive legislation. And yeah, there are things it doesn't address, right? There's still a high bar of notification, like to get the State Department to get notifications to all of Congress people. Commerce Department, as of now, still will control commercial sales. And there's no precise method for risk assessment in this legislation. But with that said, this legislation will work to reduce risk from weapon sales in a way no legislation has previously. So with that, thank you. Thank you all for being here, whether physically or virtually. Uh, Jordan's covered arms sales. I'm going to cover the two remaining issues under the heading of national security powers. That's war and national emergency authority. Let's start with a look at what the Constitution has to say about presidential uh, war and emergency powers. And I'll turn to where we are now, why it's terrible, uh, what Congress might be able to do to make it less terrible, and the general prospects for reform. Uh, I'm really happy to, to say that, uh, that I, I was worried about it, but, but nobody here th that I can remember uh, said co-equal branch. That's something you often hear, uh, you know, people who I think are on the, the right side of the, the, these issues, uh, often uh, senators and congressmen, talking about uh, recapturing uh, Congress's constitutional authority will say, hey, we're a co-equal branch, uh, you know, like a peer, somebody that's entitled to, a, uh, to their opinion and a little respect. Well, it's always seemed to me that uh, that phrase uh, sells Congress short. Uh, in, in, the, uh, in the physical architecture of this city, by design, the Capitol building looms over the president's house. Uh, the constitutional architecture has a similar design. Uh, Congress comes first in Article One, As Madison said, in small r Republican government, the legislative authority necessarily predominates. And on paper, uh, especially when it comes to uh, constitutional powers over war, and national emergencies, Congress is absolutely dominant, not co-equal. Virtually every uh, war and military power you can find in the Constitution belongs to Congress. It's left to Congress to raise and support armies, to make rules for their use, uh, to provide for calling forth the militia, to execute the laws of the Union, and uh, importantly, to declare war. What does the President get? Well, according to the first sentence of Article II, he gets the executive power. Uh, and presidential partisans over the years have tried to torture penumbras and emanations uh, out of that clause that give the president the power to launch wars. Uh, but then as now, the executive power is principally 
uh, the power to faithfully execute the laws, to uh, enact, to, uh, uh, to make concrete policy decisions that uh, Congress has already made. Uh, Article 2, Section 2 makes the President Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy of the United States, of course. And this is another clause that executive power enthusiasts have seized upon to argue for a presidential power to make war. But as Hamilton explained in Federalist 69, uh, the Commander-in-Chief Clause just makes the President the first general and admiral of U.S. armed forces. And generals and admirals have an important role, but they generally don't get to decide whether, when, and with whom we go to war. I should say I'm a little embarrassed to have to go to the Federalist Papers after uh, Senator Murphy went with the deep cut of uh, uh, the Helvidius-Pacificus debates between Madison and Hamilton. Uh, but it, it, the point is, in, in, in uh, the constitutional scheme, the president's military powers are largely defensive. Uh, Madison's notes from the convention, uh, it's described as the power to repel sudden attacks, which does not include the power to launch them whenever the president thinks it might be a good idea. Uh, the, and the uh, declare war clause was considered to be a real limit, not a legal formality. Uh, the Pennsylvania's James Wilson, one of the framers uh, who'd been there at uh, the Philadelphia Convention, uh, explained at the Pennsylvania Ratifying Convention what that the Declare War, War Clause was understood to mean. It was, uh, it was there so that this system will not hurry us into war, and it would not be in the power of a single man to embroil the country in such distress because the power of declaring war is vested in the legislature at large. Uh, as for national emergency powers, another, uh, another aspect of uh, presidential uh, powers that, that, that this legislation addresses, uh, Justice Jackson put it nicely in the steel seizure case in 1952. Uh, he said that the framers knew what emergencies were, and, but they also knew that they afford a ready pretext for usurpation. Uh, they suspected that emergency powers might tend to kindle emergencies. And so aside from the suspension of habeas corpus, which is a power granted to Congress, not the president, uh, the framers made no express provision for exercise of an extraordinary authority because of a crisis. I do not think we may rightfully amend their work, he said. In fact, though, if you squint while you're looking at the Constitution, you might be able to make out a single emergency power that it gives to the president. Article 2, Section 3 gives the president the power to call Congress into session on, quote, extraordinary occasions, like perhaps a national emergency. And that is so that Congress can tell him what to do. Uh, he is, as uh, Madison said, the limited organ of the national will uh, determined by Congress. Of course, what we've got now looks dramatically different than what I've just described to you. Uh, this system will not hurry us into war. That was the way it was supposed to work, but in the 21st century, uh, as Senator Murphy alluded to, we've seen the emergence of a radically uh, different regime in which going to war is easy, frequent, and rarely debated. Uh, in 2017, Barack Obama left office as the first two-term president in American history to, been, to, have, to have been at war every single day of his presidency. 
In his last year alone, uh, dropping over 26,000 bombs on some seven different countries. Uh, nine months into his tenure, Donald Trump had already blown past that tally, um, all based on the theory that uh, Congress, three days after 9-11, had pre-approved all of this activity in the 2001 uh, authorization for the use of military force, and that it is one Congress, one vote, one time. Uh, he also, the, the President Trump also seized dangerous new ground in January 2020 with the target, using the targeted killing machinery uh, set up earlier on in the war in ter on terror to eliminate uh, Iranian General Major General uh, Qasem Soleimani. Uh, it's the first time an American president has publicly ordered the assassination of a top government official for a country we're not legally at war with. This system will not hurry us into peace. Uh, on the home front, uh, the last presidency, uh, our last president, uh, not to subject him to too much abuse, but uh, he did show the danger of larding the uh, the federal code with uh, over 100 uh, statutory powers uh, by the, through which the, the president can unlock emergency authorities simply by saying the, the magic words national emergency. Uh, it seemed never to have occurred to uh, previous presidents that you could use such powers to do an end run around Congress in a budget battle and snatch funding for a project that Congress had repeatedly refused to support at the levels he wanted. Um, but that is what uh, President Trump did in February 2019 when he declared a national emergency at the southern border to uh, build the wall and shift billions of dollars uh, that Congress had not appropriated for that purpose. Congress be damned. Um, Sometimes when we uh, talk about the, the Constitution and the framers, it can sound like, uh, you know, we're, we're saying, you know, we should just keep faith with those guys. We don't want to make James Madison sad. Uh, I'd, I should say that's not the spirit in which uh, uh, I make these comparisons. Uh, you know, I, I think it's important uh, to know what the law is if you want to change it, uh, constitutional law. Um, but I would say, in particularly uh, in the area of war and emergency powers, uh, their skeptical view of human nature, uh, I think, has been borne out. Their uh, reluctance to cede unchecked authority is something that uh, uh, we learn again and again uh, had, uh, had wisdom in it. Uh, well, how we got here, uh, the, uh, the phrase flip the script uh, is right. That is what the uh, modern president-centered regime has done. Uh, Jordan uh, talked a little bit, a little bit about this uh, in the context of, of arms sales. Um, in the original design, uh, Congress had the whip hand. The president had some defensive tools. Uh, such as the veto to push back when it overstepped. Um, the way things have evolved uh, in recent decades, uh, the president gets uh, mostly a free hand 
for action in many different areas unless a congressional supermajority of both houses can be assembled to stop him. The president proposes and the president disposes. Uh, that's thanks in part to a 1983 Supreme Court decision uh, that uh, held that, con the, that congressional attempts to rein in presidential action have to themselves run the gauntlet of the ordinary legislative pr process and be subject to presidential signature or veto. Uh, since the president is going to veto uh, attempts to uh, overturn what he's just done, uh, in practice it takes a veto-proof majority to, to undo it, which is uh, a higher bar even than impeaching and removing a president from office, uh, which takes a majority in the House and a supermajority in the Senate. Uh, so whatever the formal merits of this decision, the Chata decision, the upshot was to, sh was to shift the default setting of American government toward unilateral presidential action. And you can see how this has operated by looking at President Trump's use of the veto power. Uh, in eight of the 10 vetoes issued during his single term, uh, the president beat back attempts to reverse unilateral actions that a congressional majority uh, opposed. Uh, Jordan referred to uh, three of those cases uh, involving congressionally disproved arms sales to Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Um, there's another under the War Powers Resolution aimed at uh, stopping U.S. support for the Saudis' war in Yemen. Um, and uh, despite the fact that Jefferson called the, the president's veto a shield to protect against the invasions of the legislature, it's become something like the opposite. Uh, a weapon that allows the president to seize new powers and use the veto to keep them. Uh, that's what happened with uh, vetoes uh, of attempts by the House and the Senate to overturn Trump's border wall emergency. And uh, after the targeted killing of Soleimani, uh, he used the veto to defeat another resolution aimed at restraining his ability to further wage undeclared war against Iran. Uh, so, uh, as Jordan alluded to, uh, one of the most important things that this legislation does, or significant, let's say, is to attempt to flip the script or the switch uh, back, change, to change the default setting on war, national emergencies, and arms sales uh, so that uh, unilateral actions require congressional approval to stick. Uh, which would get it far closer to the way things were supposed to work. Uh, the, the act does another, a couple of uh, other important things as well. Uh, tightens the definition of hostilities so that, among other things, um, uh, future presidents would not be able to argue, as the Obama administration did in Libya, that it's not hostilities uh, if you're bombing them and they can't hit you back, which was actually the argument for uh, going beyond the time limits uh, of the War Powers Resolution in the Libya case. Uh, Senator Murphy uh, talked about the enforcement mechanism uh, via the power of the purse um, and the sunsets of four existing AUMFs, including the 2001 AUMF, the blank check that has caused so much presidential mischief. Um, here again, there's some things it, it doesn't do. It, it won't resolve the 
issue of 2001 AUMF replacement, but I think not uh, providing for that was probably a wise choice uh, because it does not need uh, properly understood to be replaced. Um, it doesn't uh, tackle the, the, the problem of uh, the existing emergent delegations of emergency authority larded throughout the federal code, um, but you know, perhaps a, a BRAC-style commission sometime in the future that comes through existing laws and suggests delegations to tighten or eliminate would be worth pursuing at some point. Um, so what are the chances that something like this uh, could pass? Uh, I am not known around the office for my sunny optimism, uh, but I do have to say that uh, the prospects for a major effort of some sort aimed at de-imperializing the presidency uh, are probably, the, the stars are uh, better aligned than they have any been any time since probably Watergate. Uh, for one thing, war powers reformers are in a much better position than they were today than they were in 1973 when the original war powers resolution had to pass over Richard Nixon's veto. Uh, the current president is at least a fair weather friend to congressional war powers. Uh, running for president in 2008, then Senator Biden uh, went on record saying George W. Bush should be impeached if he tried to take the country into war with Iran uh, without congressional approval. A decade before that, he, he actually introduced a war powers uh, replacement bill called the Use of Force Act that um, in some respects, well, it, like the, the bill we've been talking about to, today, would have automatically cut off funding for wars that Congress didn't authorize. Uh, of course, it's not clear how much all of that is worth. Joe Biden's had five decades in politics, and that's enough time to uh, get on both sides of every issue. Uh, and what's more, there are very few presidents who, after doing the arduous, humiliating things that you have to do to win the presidency, end up saying that, uh, well, now that I'm here, what I'd really like is to have a lot less power. Uh, so we will have to see. But let me close by saying that, of course, any such measure, uh, whether it's the National Security Powers Act or, uh, uh, or something else, uh, before it could get to the president's desk, Congress would need to pass it. And that takes work. And what's worse, if something like this passed, uh, that would mean even more work for Congress going forward. Uh, if the National Security Powers Act uh, passed, they'd have to stand and be counted on the weapons we decide to sell, the emergencies the president declares, and the wars that presidents want to fight, which is a hassle. Uh, in his remarks back in July when uh, he and his colleagues introduced this act, uh, Senator Murphy was frank and almost apologetic about what the bill would mean. He used the word workload several times. Uh, it mean a greater workload for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and the Armed Services Committee, and it's going to increase the workload as a whole, of Congress as a whole on national security matters. But he said, rightly, that the country would be better off from more public debates on which wars we get into the way, and the ways that this nation exports wars. Uh, well, it's probably not wrong to think you have to, control, you have to cajole members of Congress to, to do their jobs. 
uh, because the fact is that letting the president make most of the important calls has turned out to be a pretty sweet deal for individual congressmen and women. Uh, takes a huge weight of responsibility off their shoulders and frees them to, up to focus on constituent service and occasionally take shots at the president when the wars that they haven't authorized end up going badly. Um, so while I, I can't, uh, by temperament and uh, uh, tax status, uh, uh, make a case for voting uh, that Congress, anyone in Congress should vote for a particular bill, um, I might be able to say more generally why an effort to reclaim congressional authority might be worth the extra work even to uh, members of Congress. Uh, it is no secret that the public holds Congress in very low, in very low esteem. Uh, you can see this in long-running survey data on uh, public faith in various American institutions. Uh, you, Gallup and other organizations will give likely voters a, a list of prominent institutions and say, tell me how much confidence you have in each one, a great deal, quite a lot, some or very little. They add up great deal and quite a lot to, to get the number. For decades now, Congress has been stuck at the bottom of the list. In the 2021 tally, uh, it's at 12% at Gallup, four points behind television news. Uh, my favorite variation on this sort of survey was done uh, some years back by some smart-ass pollsters who asked likely voters to rank Congress ver versus a series of god-awful scourges like traffic jams, NFL replacement refs, and Washington, <laughs> D.C. political pundits. And all of those things outscored Congress. In fact, Congress proved less popular than head lice, colonoscopies, and nickelback, <laughs> which had to hurt. But maybe Congress deserves uh, some of the disrespect it, it gets when you think about how much power the first branch has ceded to the president uh, over the years. Is it really surprising that the public uh, holds it in such low esteem that it's come to think that it, it's a loud and useless performative debating society that's not even very good at debate. Uh, there's, there's more than a, a, a little truth to that. And, uh, you know, if part of your, uh, these, these folks want to be popular, uh, if part of your, uh, your status involves uh, being with, being part of a respected institution, uh, that argues, I think, for uh, uh, some degree of self-interest in helping Congress get its groove back. Maybe it would even do, we know it would do the rest of us some good. Maybe it would even do members of Congress some good. So with that, I will, uh, I will sit down for question and answer period. Uh, for the Q&A segment, I have my handy-dandy iPad where people have been submitting uh, questions via Slido and via online platforms, so please, online audience, keep that up. Um, if any of you in the crowd would like to ask a question, please raise your hand, and my colleague James uh, over here will bring a mic to you um, to get uh, started. Uh, there's a question here, and for some of those who are submitting online, I might group 
a couple things that are on a similar theme. Um, from Jeff Abramson uh, and from an anonymous user, there was a question here about partisanship and how partisanship impacts this question of congressional war powers. Uh, Jeff says, um, oh. oh, sorry, that was the, sorry. Jeff's question was uh, not on partisanship, my bad. Um, but the anonymous user was, how can we expect the legislative branch to discharge a more effective role in the use of armed force by the executive when it is riven by bipartisan or partisan dysfunction? Uh, Gene, if you wanted to take a crack at that. Sure, I mean, that's a, that's a real problem. Uh, you know, less of a problem when, uh, so Madison had the view that uh, ambition would counter ambition and that uh, the interests of the people within the body, within each body, within each branch would lead them to defend the constitutional rights of the place. And uh, that hasn't worked out that well in modern times, uh, particularly when the uh, presidency and uh, the uh, legislature and the legislative branch are in the, in the same hands. When you have divided government, you tend to see uh, partisanship working in a way that, uh, you know, gets you more oversight, more scrutiny, uh, and more pushback from Congress. Uh, but uh, I, I, I think this is a huge problem. I think it was something like uh, only 12 Republican senators uh, voted to disapprove uh, President Trump's uh, border wall emergency. And I mean, you know for a fact that, uh, uh, the, that the, the tally would be radically different uh, if Barack Obama had uh, invoked a national emergency power uh, to, uh, I don't know, build solar panels or something like that. Uh, so it, it's a huge problem. And I think uh, uh, outside of, outside of the, the brief times when it, when it benefits you, when it works in, in the favor of uh, interbranch friction, uh, I do think it's something that we uh, need to, to get beyond. And that's uh, one reason I... Uh, I generally applaud institutionalists uh, like Senator Murphy of either party uh, who, uh, Mike Lee uh, uh, is a, has a, a largely similar record when, of, you know, anyone who is, who is willing to go against a president of their own party uh, on these fundamental issues of the separation of powers. Uh, you know, we need to see more of it. Great, thanks. Um, Jordan, I have uh, one from you uh, about end use monitoring, which I know that you're deep in the, in the weeds on in a good way. Uh, from John Lindsay Poland from Global Exchange, he asked, um, licenses and end user certi certificate certificates for US firearm exports to Mexican police and military do not identify end users despite extensive human rights violations. How can end user controls for US firearms exports be strengthened? Yeah, I mean, I'm uh, going to be the pessimistic one here. I, I think end-use monitoring is a really big problem, and even with things like Blue Lantern and Golden Century that, in theory, are designed to kind of help with this, anybody you would talk to from the State Department would tell you it's still a fairly large problem. I, I think this legislation uh, does not really get there too much. Lean, lean a bit closer to uh, the mic. Yeah, I, I think this uh, legislation doesn't get there too much, but I think that is something that if legislation like this were to be passed, 
you can work towards, right? Because this would be kind of a first step. Okay, great. And sorry, that question from the audience. Uh, my question has to do with uh, uh, subject of arms exports, uh, arms sales. The most powerful argument normally given for arms sales is economic um, and the simple fact that if the United States industry doesn't sell, manufacture and sell certain arms to, to foreign buyers, then the French, the British, the Russian, the Chinese, the Israeli, any number of other countries will do so. So the restricting arms exports will have no impact on the ground but simply will harm the U.S. economy. I wonder if any of the panelists could speak to that issue since it's really the overriding issue in every discussion about arms exports. Thanks. Yeah, I, I can take that one. Thank you. That was a great question. Um, yeah, I, I think generally speaking, that is probably the most powerful argument. And even broadly, not just economic, but from a strategy point, it, the argument is if the U.S. doesn't do it, somebody else will fill in. I am skeptical about that argument, both from kind of the literature and economics that suggests the weapons industry is a pretty inefficient industry. It, it seems fairly logical that you could, those jobs could still exist. Uh, but from just a strategy perspective, a lot of these countries don't want Russian weapons or Chinese weapons, right? It's easy to say something like, well, if Saudi Arabia can't get US weapons, then they'll turn to Russia, or they'll turn to China. But generally speaking, that isn't the way this works because Saudi Arabia's military is mainly made up of US weapons. And they can't just turn to Russia and get weapons. They can't just turn to France to get weapons. Uh, France and the UAE recently agreed on an arms sales deal, right? And, and but, but that deal happens whether or not the US sells the weapons. The difference is if the US isn't selling the weapons, then the US isn't attached to whatever conflict those planes are going to be used in. Um, and you see this with Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Turkey. It's easy on one hand for them to say, if you don't give us your weapons, we'll get them from somebody else. And that's true. But then the alternative is, well, we won't be part of your war. Um, and it's kind of like a libertarian. The biggest threat to the state is war. Or the biggest threat to freedom is the state going to war. All right. Any other questions in the audience? Yes. I'm getting a blinking light up here saying that we are technically over time. So I think I'll just take the one more question. Well, thank you for humoring me. Um, to go off that last question, um, with this sort of supply dependencies that these arms sales bring, what sort of reforms um, would you like to see Congress enact to ensure that these weapons are not being used in ways that they don't approve of? Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you. And uh, it's cool that there's a lot of questions on arms sales. I was not expecting that. Um, yeah, no, I, I think it, it, it. this is a great first step. My fear is that this first step doesn't happen. Uh, I, I think I'm fairly pessimistic on the arms sales end for this being able to pass. I think, generally speaking, a Democratic Congress isn't going to want to restrain a Democratic president and a Republican Congress may want to restrain a Democratic president, but they're not going to do it on weapon sales. So I, I think then things like the National Defense Authorization Act that have a lot of these kind of like small little amendments that do help like 
evaluate risk or do help stop weapons sales to be used in the conflict in Yemen are really important. Great. Gene, any, any closing words? No. All right. Mm -hmm. Thank you all so much for coming. I appreciate it. Uh, apologies for going a bit over time. Uh, it was great to see that you all here in the audience. And thank you all to everyone watching at home as well. Um, big round of applause for the participants. And